Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. And we have a really exciting guest today, don't we? Super exciting. Um, today, we are interviewing Chris Krause, who is um, one of my literary heroes. So I was unbelievably like beside myself to meet her. Um, she's the author of the novel, I Love Dick, which is a classic of feminist literature. You would be surprised to hear. Um, first published by Semiotext in the United States in 1997. Um, but published for the first time in the UK just now, which is why there's all the hype around it. Um, it's about a woman who makes video art named Chris Krause and her obsession with Dick, an academic, and her husband's involvement in her desire for this man. Uh, and it's fabulous. And she's since written three other novels, most recently Summer of Hate. And she's also a publisher with Semiotext, a teacher and a cultural critic. Um, and she was in London for the promotional stuff for I Love Dick, and we were lucky enough to collar her for a morning of her time. Yeah, we had quite a lot of fun with her. We, we also walked her to the tube afterwards. Like super fan girls. Couldn't let go. Couldn't let yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> um, in I Love Dick, Chris writes a story about her infatuation with Dick called Abstract Romanticism, and that's what our, we're calling our show today. Love, you can argue, always involves some sort of objectification, and books have been a rich medium through which to explore the abstractions of desire. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. After our interview, we'll be talking about objects of desire in literature, from Romeo and Juliet to Love in the Time of Cholera, to my personal favorite, Fifty Shades of Grey. Again, book again. I know, sorry, I just had to include it. We'll also be giving all the usual book recommendations, so keep us in your hearts and your minds for the next hour of literary friction. Chris Krauss, welcome to Literary Friction. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. So we've asked you to start with a reading from I Love Dick. Could you go ahead? Okay, sure. Here it goes. And this is from the beginning of the book. Um, December 3rd, 1994. Chris Krauss, a 39-year-old experimental filmmaker, and Sylvia Lochinger, a 56-year-old college professor from New York, have dinner with Dick Blank, a friendly acquaintance of Silver's, at a sushi bar in Pasadena. Dick is an English cultural critic who's recently relocated from Melbourne to Los Angeles. Chris and Silvera have spent Silvera's sabbatical at a cabin in Crestline, a small town in the San Bernardino Mountains some 90 minutes from L.A. Since Silvera begins teaching again in January, they will soon be returning to New York. Over dinner, the two men discuss recent trends in postmodern critical theory, and Chris, who's no intellectual, notices Dick making continual eye contact with her. Dick's attention makes her feel powerful, and when the check comes, she takes out her diner's club card. Please, she says, let me pay. The radio predicts snow on the San Bernardino Highway. Dick generously invites them both to spend the night at his home in the Antelope Valley Desert, some 30 miles away. Chris wants to separate herself from her coupleness, so she sells Silvera on the thrill of riding in Dick's magnificent vintage Thunderbird convertible. Silvera, who doesn't know a T-bird from a hummingbird and doesn't care, agrees, bemused, done. Dick gives her copious concern directions. Don't worry, she interrupts, flashing hair and smiles. I'll tell you. And she does. Slightly buzzed and keeping the accelerator of her pickup truck steady, she's reminded of a, of a performance she did called Car Chase at the St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York when she was 23. She and her friend Liza Martin had tailed the steelily good-looking driver of a Porsche all the way through Connecticut on Highway 95. 
Finally, he pulled over at a rest stop, but when Liza and Chris got out, he drove off. The performance ended with Liza accidentally but really stabbing Chris's hand on stage with a kitchen knife. Blood flowed, and everyone found Liza dazzlingly sexy and dangerous and beautiful. Liza belly popping out of a fizzy, fuzzy midriff top, fishnet legs tearing up against her green vinyl miniskirt as she rocked back to show her crotch. Looked like the cheapest kind of whore. A star is born. No one at the show that night had found Chris's pale, anemic looks and piercing gaze remotely endearing. Could anyone? It was a question that had temporarily been shelved. But now it was a whole new world. The request line on 92.3 The Beat was thumping post-riot Los Angeles, a city strung on fiber-optic nerves. Dick's Thunderbird was always somewhere in her line of sight, the two vehicles strung invisibly together across the concrete riverbed of highway like John Dunn's eyeballs. And this time, Chris was alone. Thank you. I have to say, those opening lines, when I picked up the book and started reading it on the tube, I was just laughing and smiling. And um, I, I wanted to ask you actually about that element of comedy first, because I think I'd been recommended this book by many friends, um, most of them feminists, most of them talking about how it, it captured something about the female experience that they didn't know. But I just didn't expect it to be funny. What can you talk about your I'm comedy? I'm so glad you read it that way. Um, I mean, I always thought the book was a comedy. Obviously, it's a comedy. I didn't know I was writing a book, right? I mean, it began as a project, quote unquote, when I was just writing. Sylvia and I together were writing these crazy letters. And a long time went by, and a lot of pages were written before we realized, or I realized it was a book. But when I went back, to write it, as soon as you start talking about yourself in the third person, I mean, it becomes a novel, and, and it's got to become kind of a comedy, too. So all the commentary that I was writing in between the letters in the first part of the book is very tongue-in-cheek, you know? It's like already these two have become kind of an exhibit. They've become characters, you know, little puppets that you could move around. So, yeah, primarily the book is a comedy. I don't really understand when people, even people who like the book, talk about it as some kind of vindication of female abjection. I mean, I just, I, I, what's so abject about it? <laughs> Can, could it be both? Or do you, do you think that's I mean, not... I mean, what's no, what isn't abject, right? I mean, all the things that people do every day, all human behavior is potentially abject, and it's also potentially really funny. I mean, there's something so somber about that word, abjection. Yes. So serious and so kind of high modernist that I don't quite buy into. Yeah, and also the only way to cope with desire as such an extreme force is to laugh at it, right? It makes fools of us, all of us, when we get caught in that kind of obsessive longing for somebody and we create this object from our own imagination. It's funny. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so this, uh, the reason we're interviewing you is not because the book was just published, but because it's published for the first time in the UK this year. Is it strange to be talking about it almost 20 years after it was first published in 1997. It's not horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Worst things have happened. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
mean, yes, of course. I'd rather I was doing all this a year from now with the book I'm working on now, which will be coming out in spring 17. But then again, there's something really wonderful, I mean, that kind of confirms my belief in, you know, the romance of literature, that when you write a book, it's like this, you know, this, this, this item just kind of hurled out into the void, into the culture and the atmosphere, and you don't know where it's going to land. You know, so it's amazing and wonderful that it's landed here and with you and with people like you 18 years later who were like, how, I mean, the people I talked to, I talked to some Norwegians just before I came over here. They were fantastic for a magazine. And the woman I spoke to, her name was Marin. She was like six years old when the book first came out. So it's incredible that the book gets to have this kind of second and third life among other people. It's great. Do you think people are responding to it in a different way now than they did when it was first published? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, now it's, um, it, it doesn't seem terribly controversial, right? I mean, it's fun, I think, and people find it fun. But when it came out, it was so incredibly polarizing in the way that was very surprising to me. I mean, was I the first person to ever have an affair? The first person to ever leave a husband? I mean, the first person to talk about sitting by the phone waiting for it to ring? I mean, none of these things seemed terribly transgressive to me. And yet, I would say 60 or 65% of the response to the book when it first came out was extremely harsh and, and negative. They hated it. And so that made the 35 or 40% who liked the book really love it that much more. So there was like this debate about the book that was totally surprising to me. And yet, what more could you ask for? in a first book, you know? I'd been kind of like, I'd been making these films in obscurity for 10 or 12 years, kind of hoping, hoping, hoping that more than 20 people would see my next <laughs> film. So the best thing that could possibly happen is that people find your book polarizing and they want to argue about it. You know, when um, one of the first reviews that came out was the magazine Art Forum, and the critic described it as a book not so much written as secreted. And I was like, okay, bring it on. This is good. <laughs> That's intense, secreted. I mean, wow. Um, and that, I mean, the thing I, I was thinking about, the repackaging of it by Serpent's Tale, the, the British publisher, because um, I have a copy of the American edition from a while ago, which is very different. And this, their look is very contemporary. I love Dick in big letters. It's fun, right? It's kind of playing on the humor of it. But it turns the book into a kind of transgressive object as well, you know, to be walking around with I love dick, you know, <laughs> under your arm. <laughs> but as you say, like, it's a, different, it's a different climate now. And I think, I don't know what you think about where contemporary feminism is at the moment, as opposed to where it was when the book first came out. Um, is there like, do you, do you see a different climate for, for this kind of work? Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, you have to say feminisms now, right? Because true, there are true. so many. There are so many forms of it and so many kinds. But um, actually, the book came out again in 2006. That was when it started to have a new life. Um, Hedy Alkalti, he's one of the co-editors of Semiotext. He thought that would be a good time to republish the book. It had been this little book, you know, in the 90s format. And he brought it back as a full-sized book with a, a Baudrillard picture on the cover. 
And uh, it was a really good moment for the book to come out because that was kind of just the, the height or maybe just the end of the height of the female blogging phenomenon. There were all these really brilliant women who had started their own blogs. Um, Ariana Raines, Kate Sanfrino, Jackie Wang, a bunch of other people. Those three have become kind of close friends and I've followed their work over the years. Um, but all these blogs were going, you know, people were meeting each other via each other's blogs. And um, so this question of privacy that it seemed so controversial and polarizing in 1998 when the book came out. Well, eight years later, it was it was like a non-question. I mean, people, younger women, were just really not going to tolerate that kind of patriarchal law of silence anymore. You know, people really had to be able to speak about their own experience. You know, when I was writing the book, I was looking back to older antecedents of feminism, like the second wave feminists, and what had happened to them, and nobody talked about them. It was so unglamorous in the late 90s to think about people like Kate Millett and Shalamath Firestone and the people of the 70s feminist era. And it was horrifying the more I got into it to see how, as they went on later in their lives, they'd been kind of marginalized and ridiculed, and you know they hadn't had really full lives and careers and not been taken seriously, and they'd really actually been made to suffer a lot for what they did. One of the things that I really loved about this book, um, reading it, is I felt very justified in my own passions and desires and weird hang-ups and obsessions. And um, I've when I've spoken to a lot of other people who love this book, men and women, I think they say the same thing. Was part of what drove you to write it the sense that those things needed to be taken seriously? Well, I mean, that's part of the reason that I couldn't really start writing until then and what kind of put me off most contemporary literary fiction is that you'd read these books and none of these people in the book seem like you or like anyone you know. So, I mean, I've always liked writing that kind of presents a person that's relatable to me and makes me feel less weird and alone. You know, reading that kind of like more smoothed out and glossified contemporary fiction makes you feel more weird and alone. It's like, you know, like like watching a bunch of, you know, kind of airplane movies back to back and nobody's life is ever, ever like that. But, I mean, literature is supposed to be the thing that makes you feel less alone and the thing that kind of pierces that and that makes you feel a deep connection and recognition in yourself with other people. So, yeah, to talk about these things that are, quote, abject or embarrassing it's like, what's embarrassing? I mean, these are totally common experiences. What did you find interesting about being able to write about an experience you had, but in the third person, to fictionalize an experience that you had to some extent? Well, I mean, what always stopped me from writing, which I probably should have started much earlier, was, you know, I'd been a journalist in my teens, and, you know, it sort of seemed like I would be a writer, but then I, then I didn't. Um, what stopped me was that I really didn't have any talent for making shit up. I could, you know, I could just, I, I could never understand how people could invent these kind of characters and the way writers talk about my characters and these elaborate plots. I mean, I was, it completely stumped me, right? 
And um, so film was easier because it's like everything is happening in another remove and your mind can be in there, but your mind is kind of externalized and it's like you're demonstrating your mind through the editing. Um, it wasn't until I started writing the letters that I realized that, oh, I have a lot to say and I want to say it very directly and in the first person. Um, and, I, and I could do that through the letter form in a way that I couldn't have if I just sort of sat down to write. It would never have occurred to me to write a memoir that would have just seemed incredibly boring and self-indulgent. Um, yeah, one of the things that comes up in the book as well is the tension between sexuality and sex and desire and longing for something empty, right? And there's, there's a bit where Chris in the book describes sobriety and sexuality and asexuality as the conditions for creativity. And um, I wonder what you think about that now. Do you still think that being, being sexual, sexual in your body and actively blocks creativity and longing for it facilitates creativity? I don't think there's any connect or disconnect necessarily. I mean, just like people in their lives, I think everybody goes through these ebbs and flows of waxes and wanes of like very sexual periods and less sexual periods. And a se I mean, some people would say that like creativity is only comes out of a sexual period. Um, and I don't think that's any more true than the opposite. Um, I mean, all kinds of moods and tempers and humors and jives can be channeled into something else. Mm -hmm. the, another way that I think this book reclaims the female experience is this idea of Chris as a character always being, f her experience always being filtered through the men in her life. So even her relationship with Dick, um, Dick mainly corresponds with Silver. And um, I, I don't know if it's a spoiler at the end to, to ruin it, no, but I, I, it's this last shocking moment where Dick writes a letter back to Silver and then photocopies it and sends it to Chris. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, going through the experience of that book and then for that to be the punchline is shocking and upsetting and <laughs> <laughs> and one but but one feels or this this one felt that um that actually the the project of writing the book was a way of Chris finding her voice do you think that's true that that the whole project was a way of Chris kind of getting beyond those spaces of male communication and having to be expressed through other male voices well not consciously but i mean i think i think that's a thing that people hook onto a lot in the book is that it happens all by itself over the course of the book and it happens through writing you know halfway through the book she starts you know when she's on the road trip she starts writing, well, dear Dick, I think I replaced you with your diary. I think you're replacing dear Dick. And she, you know, it, the real romance is with writing. And somehow she's kind of finding her way out. I think maybe there's a line where she says it in the book that, like, the only way out is going to be through writing. Yeah. And there's the sense she keeps referring to herself as no intellectual, which I think was that at the beginning, and she's a dumb cunt, and... Um, I guess that's kind of true in the context of the, the circle she hangs out with, which is a lot of male academics. But I think this book in its in its own text totally disproves that, that it's like this romp through history and theory and 
she's obviously so well read and like to the point where I was I was like if she's a dumb cunt I don't <laughs> even know what I am <laughs> I wonder if, if again it, was that intentional or was that just well that yeah I mean that's kind of an all an old school New York Jewish thing right yeah. the self-deprecating humor right it's yeah. like not very often that women can claim it you know, women are supposed to be so ashamed of themselves anyway that, like, you know, God forbid they would use self-deprecating humor. But, I mean, it's a very... It, it, it's a kind of comedic routine, right? Yeah. I'm so it's bad. like, okay, if other people say that about her, she's going to say it quadruple about herself. You know, she keeps talking about how ugly she is. and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and the figure... She calls herself a hag again and again right. and again. Which... <laughs> <laughs> really made me laugh because that tends to come up in connection with like finding a way to make a living out of her artwork right and she sort of talks about herself as a bad feminist at one point and a hag in that she's relying on Sylvain financially at times and like hustling basically the hustle which is described with such humor but it's such a true it's a truism for any creative person. Well, that's the real taboo, exactly, of course, money. Exactly. Money is much Absolutely. more the taboo than sex. Absolutely, and especially within the context of gender, heteronormative gender relationships, right? Like, how do you embody your own feminism if you're being financially supported by an, an agent of patriarchy? I mean, I think that's really kind of a, a first question that people really ought to ask when they look at art and cultural works is how is the person living? That's always part of the story, but it's a part of the story that we really don't talk about. Yeah, we don't want to. We don't want to prick the bubble of the kind of mystique. But also, I mean, one of the things that Carrie actually picked up on was the the plot that runs through where Sylvain and Chris are homeowners, you know, and they, they're landlords, and that's partly how they make money. And it made me think of Luis Bunuel, the film director, surrealist, who always said to be truly bourgeois was to live off one's own rents, obviously. And and I think it's a really, yeah, it's a it's a quite a cutting element in the book, but it's like you say, it's blowing open this final taboo of like, but how do these people actually live? You know, what are the sacrifices they're making? Yes. Yes, I mean, I was desperate at the time that I met Sylvain. I was in my late 20s by then. I was too old to keep topless dancing. I quit that three years ago. I was doing temp office work, and it was like, if something doesn't happen soon, I'd better go back to school and become a lawyer or something. I better go to law school. I'm, I mean, how am I going to live? Um, I didn't have health insurance. You know, I was living in this very marginal way. Um, and if I hadn't have met Silvera and gotten together with him, I, don't, I mean, I would have had to go back to New Zealand. I could never have continued to be an artist. Never. Um, so unless people have other kinds of family support or private income, that's a crucial question that intensifies as you get to your late 20s you know, and early 30s, is how are you going to support yourself and make it work? And it's... it's I mean, it, it's very, very difficult for someone to have some kind of regular 40-hour-a-week job and still maintain, you know, both do their work and build a career, and it, it, it's, it's almost impossible. You've always said that Dick doesn't need to refer to a, a particular Dick. It's more of, he's more of an er-Dick, I think you've said. Um, why, why is that the case? And... Do you ever question the sort of ethical 
nature of the project in the fact that Dick is a real person and was outed by New York Magazine, I think. I questioned it all the time when I was working on the book and before I published the book. Um, I didn't use his surname. Um, I changed his physical description. I didn't use the title of any of his published works. Um, I didn't, you know, it wasn't about him and it wasn't against him. And when I found out that he was upset, well, I found out because he had a lawyer send a cease and desist letter when we were going to publish the book. I called him up and I said, look, why don't you just write the introduction and we'll publish it together and then everybody think we're all in on the joke. You know, that it's not against you. And he absolutely declined. And then uh, when New York Magazine wrote a little story about the book coming out in the cease and desist letter, somebody who kind of knew it was him called him up. And so in order to say horrible things about me, you know, that crazy bitch, um, he outed himself and he let himself be quote by a surname. But it was never my intention to kind of, you know, mess with somebody else's life like that. Also, as you said, like the figure of the crazy bitch, you know, the obsessive, mad, lustful woman who's chasing down a man, you know, we see it all the time, but talking as we are about honesty, everyone who's ever desired anybody has been that crazy bitch, male, female, trans, whatever, right? Yeah. So that's the unifying thing at the heart of the book. So it's, it's so sad that he couldn't come on board with that, right? That he had to defend his ego position. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, there was a, after the point that I realized it was a book and not a relationship, um, well, I had to move forward with it as a book. And I really didn't want to do so at his expense, but if he was gonna refuse to collaborate in any way, and his collaboration, I guess, was strange because if he'd done, if he'd ever said to me stop at any point, I would have stopped. You know, likewise, if it had become like some kind of real, even short-lived romance or relationship, probably there wouldn't be a book because they would have been phone called. We wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been written. You know, it was this kind of unique situation where he neither says stop nor does he respond. So he becomes this kind of blank screen. He offers himself as a blank screen for someone else's projection that was such fertile ground for this particular book. Well, it is, he's the archetypal object of desire, right? Mute and, <laughs> and phallic. <laughs> I, it, I lived in New York and in LA, and I have a lot of friends who are writers, of course, and who are, you know, know each other. And... Um, I have numerous friends, women friends, who end up in ex-boyfriends' books as very recognizable characters and not very sympathetic or appealing characters. But everybody you know, who you care knows or not knows, knows that it's them. I mean, maybe he changes the name from Carol to Sandra, but everybody knows that it's Carol. You know, and um, so I don't see why that scruple applies in, I, I don't see why there's any difference in how that scruple should apply. Because it's very unusual that a writer completely fabricates a character. Sometimes, even if it's written in the third person with character names changed, completely changed, there's just a paper thin divider 
between the per, you know the, the the person in life and the character name. And one final question, I think, although I, I'm, I want to keep. We have a lot hours. more, <laughs> but we won't. <laughs> we won't do what you did to Dick. Maybe <laughs> lock you in the flat and just keep talking at you. Um, but uh, you you mentioned you're writing a biography of Kathy Acker, and I just wanted to ask you about that. Why did you choose to write about her, and what what are you hoping to do with the biography? It was inevitable. Um, I didn't know her well. We weren't friends. She was the last serious girlfriend of Silvera before Silvera and I got together. We were certainly in the same world, and we knew, I mean, she was barely, I wasn't very active, so I didn't really kind of factor much on her radar, but she factored hugely on mine. She, I was extremely moved and influenced and inspired by her early writings when I first arrived in New York and read them like everybody did around the East Village. And then later I watched her become this very famous public figure, kind of scary famous public figure um, in London and later. And um, when she, was she I, I was friends with her, uh, the man who became her executor, Matthias Fiegner in LA when she was sick and when she was dying, and Matthias was the person who took care of her. So I was kind of in the loop around the time of her death, even though I wasn't kind of actually present for it. But I was very shattered by that. And um, I had just started writing myself, and there was something so, I don't know, kind of clarifying and terrifying to me that this person who'd had like you know thousands of people in thrall and this huge persona would die surrounded by such a tiny, small, with no real intimates in such a lonely way. And I was very upset by it. Um, so I, I thought I would write her biography. And luckily for the book, in 2000, you know, just two years after I Love, I Love Dick came out, I went around and I talked to a lot of people who had been close to Kathy in her early life. But then it just all seemed too close and murky, and people were already characterizing me as a kind of like Kathy Acker imitation or something as a consequence of I Love Dick. I didn't see it that way. I feel like we're very different as writers, but I didn't want to perpetuate that. So I put it to the side. Um, and then more recently, you know, people of Kathy's generation, their memoirs are starting to come out. You know, the sort of glorious golden days of the New York 70s and 80s. And I was there, you know, you know, I had just come from New Zealand. I was a younger person and I was very much on the sidelines and it didn't seem so glorious to me. I would never think of writing a memoir, but I thought there's got to be some way of kind of, you know, demolishing... I, I, I hate all these mythologies about the past, these false histories. You know, if there's going to be a history, let it be a true history. And the last thing I would want to do is write a memoir. I have nothing to talk about. I wasn't doing much. So in a way, it's a transference. And in Aliens and Anorexia, my second book, while I'm reading Simone Vale, I talk about this radical empathy that I think that she practiced. And in a way, writing about Kathy is a form of radical empathy. So, I mean, I'm writing about her always in the third person, never in the first. But there are many times as I'm working on the book where there's these, I get these kind of goosebumps, and I feel like I could say I when I'm saying she. And it's not just because, you know, okay, there were some boyfriends in common. It's like, oh, fucked him too. But... <laughs> <laughs> but that's not really it. It's something much deeper, 
Martha Rosler, the artist Martha Rosler, when I interviewed her about Kathy in 2000, she said this amazingly beautiful thing. And she didn't even like Kathy. They had a husband in common that, that Kathy kind of eloped with and, you know, leaving Martha alone with the kid. They weren't friends. But she said, you know, really, I could have been Kathy. Kathy could have been me. You could have been me. Eleanor Anton, we all could have been each other. We're all the same. That is incredibly powerful. And, and the idea of passing the baton between one another for that very reason, you know, and filling in the gaps in history with that kind of empathy. Yeah, I, that's beautiful. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on the show. You've been a pleasure and a laugh. Thank you. It's wonderful talking to you. That was Chris Kraus being interviewed. So the theme today is abstract romanticism, and that is a term that crops up in the novel I Love Dick. So do you want to explain the, the context in which it's in the novel, and then we can talk a little bit more about what we mean more generally by abstract romanticism? Absolutely. So um, when Chris meets Dick and her desire for him is ignited, she goes back and she writes a short story called Abstract Romanticism. And I think she says it's the first story she's written for about five years. So it's kind of a, a perfect example of how desire awakens us, you know, physically, but also intellectually, mentally. It's an incredibly stimulating state to find oneself in. Um, and that's kind of one of the threads in I Love Dick, of this kind of galvanizing, galvanizing force. Um, but here, we're extrapolating a little bit from that. And we're going to look at how um, desire and love can be a very objectifying force. And we, we kind of split the, the desired object into pieces. Um, fetishes in, in one way or another, and how that act of loving and desiring is fundamentally an act of the imagination. Mm. And we construct the object of desire to be what we need it to be, and often don't see the reality um, of what's in front of us. And it's something that I think all human beings who have felt desire can relate to. At some point in your life, there would have been a desire for somebody and then you will have woken from the spell, which often happens when you finally get to consummate your desire, which is something that we see again in the book. And they can't live up to the ideals that you've created for them. And yeah. it it's, leaves you grief-stricken, I think, a lot of the time. Yeah, and that that idea of something being an act of the imagination is is very true to I Love Dick as well, because Dick, I think at one point she says, Dear Dick, I think you've become Dear Diary. Dick, in a sense, could be anyone or anything. Um, he He's more potent as an object of desire than he is as a person. Um, and the person never really lives up to this incredible charge of creative energy that, that he essentially creates for Chris the character. Yeah, and he is a metonym for Dick. He's a metonym for all Dick, yeah. basically. He's the aubergine emoji. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I like that idea of people being split into parts and objectified, and I was thinking about that in the wider context of literature, and, and one of the things that came to mind was um, in Swan's Way, in Proust's um, In Search of Lost Time, again, I will not attempt the French pronunciation. Um, but there's uh, this I, there's this wonderful sort of uh, sequence where Proust talks about Swan falling in love with Odette, who's someone she meets in, in his social circle. 
And um, he doesn't really like Odette at first, but then he hears this sonata piece um, that he becomes completely obsessed with and starts to associate it with her. And then also he sees a painting um, by Botticelli and thinks that she looks like um, it's Jethro's daughter in the painting, which I actually, I should look this up because I never have. Um, and all of a sudden he falls in love with her. And I think that's that's such a wonderful encapsulation of the way that we objectify our love and, and almost have to fall in love through other mediums. Um, love is so mediated by the things and ideas and um, objects of of our daily lives. Yeah, and mediated by culture because the uh, uh, you know romantic acts, music and art can be romantic, literature is romantic because it's this leap of faith I suppose or the desire to express oneself, right? And the, those feelings that are universal. And yeah, Proust, I had a Proust quote down actually <clears throat> that relates which was um said by a relationship therapist, Esther Perel, in her fascinating TED talk called Rethinking Infidelity, which is obviously a whole other show, but she quoted Proust saying, it is our imagination which is responsible for love, not the other person. And that I think is brilliant because it really gets to the crux of the fact that your desire is about you, it's not about the other. Um, that, and, it, and because of that, it can become non-relational, essentially. Mm. And actually desiring somebody or even loving them doesn't necessarily mean a two-way thing. And you see that in, in literature all the time. Characters who become, you know, vehemently obsessed um, with yeah. other people. And, and we, in some ways, are obsessed with the obsession narrative. I was thinking of um, Love in the Time of Cholera. There's something yeah. romantic about somebody being obsessed, even if it's one-sided. Um, and, and partially because it's probably an experience that we've all had at one Absolutely. point or the other. And, and this idea of it being one-sided is kind of encapsulated by the epistolary novel, right? Mm. And I Love Dick is, is made largely in letters um, because you know you write to your desired object and don't necessarily get a response but it doesn't stop you you keep this outpouring going um, and I was thinking of Les Liaisons Dangereuses oh. Dangerous Liaisons which if you've also seen um, the film uh, oh my god what's it called I can't remember that film from the 90s with Sarah Michelle Gellar in it that is uh, a modernization oh. of Dangerous Liaisons everybody knows it Anyway, yeah. God, what is it called? failure, error, um, cruel intentions. Cruel intentions. Nailed it. Cruel intentions. Um, or there's the wonderful period piece with dear old John Markovitch in it. But anyway, the book is also fabulous. A French epistolary novel by Pierre Chauderlot de Laclos. There we go, really pushing it out. Do you mean you to sound really sexy when you talk in French? No, mais c'est vrai ça. Non, non. It's an accident. Um, anyway, it was first published in four volumes in 1782, so we're going back away. Um, but the thing about the book that makes it so relevant here is it's all about the abstraction of the game of love. And it becomes about um, using seduction as a way of humiliating others and engaging with the fact that this act of love and this act of desire is so universal. But if you engage with it in a, co in a cold, calculating way, it's a violence almost. Mm -hmm. And in the book, they use it, the two main characters, they use it as a violence against others, which I think is really, yeah, poignant, cruel, tactical. It's very amoral. Um, and again, if you think about this breaking down of the object of desire, it can take you away. You kind of erase the humanity of the other person, which is, in, you know, it's morally complex or ethically complex, I suppose. And that's why we see again and again characters going to extraordinary lengths 
for love, desire, you know, violent lengths. Mm. It's uh, when you mention the epistolary novel, I also think of there's something about writing a letter that in itself is an abstraction. Once you even if you're describing your love and it's meant for somebody else, again, it's this mediated plane between one and the other um, where the letter um, takes on a whole new form. Yeah, and this mediation thing, again, you're mediating through the art of words, you know, the art of letter writing, like Proust yeah. having his desire reinforced by the song and the painting. And letter writing itself could be described as abstract romanticism. Absolutely, or also masturbation. I mean, you know, the kind of auto-eroticism of the, of the act of writing the letter. And like you said in the book, Dear Dick becomes Dear Diary for Chris Krauss because it is so tied up in the self and the ego. Mm. And uh, you talked a bit about, at the beginning, about that idea of deflation, that actually the object of our desire is very different from the subject of our desire. Um, and, and that's something that's been played with in literature in many years. It's in I Love Dick. It's in Lolita. Um, very much. It's in, what else is it in? Fifty Shades of Grey? No, it's not. <laughs> no, he lives up to everything. Romeo and Juliet, yes, the classic. Yeah. Well, I guess they never disappoint themselves, but the whole point of that is that they have no idea who each other are. Yeah, and essentially the only way forward is death because if they got to know the other, then the mystery's gone, you know? I mean, the desire to desire is desire. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. But the object of desire is irrelevant. Essentially, desire, the force, will always find another object, a next object. And this is something that's co-opted by capitalism constantly, but that's, again, a whole other conversation. It sounds like you might be doing some sort of um, PhD work on this subject. I Is mean, that you never know. I have, you know, it's just something I've got some ideas about that I thought <laughs> I'd run by you. Um, yes, I do. I write about this stuff. So I'm super thrilled to be able to get it out yeah. on the radio. It's, it's blown my mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I really, talking of blowing minds, I wanted to talk about Roland Barthes' A Lover's Discourse because it seemed so relevant to me when we were designing the, the show plan because it's a, it is a book of fragments that is about the fragmented act of loving and desiring. And this idea, you know, a lover's discourse, the word lover you can replace with dick or carry or whatever, the name of the object of desire. I'm, God, revealing a bit much here, This I? is, are we having some sort of abstract romanticism? I think we might be. Right now? Mediated by microphones <laughs> and airwaves. Crikey. Go on. I'm blushing. Um, so a lover's discourse, if you haven't read it, do. It's a fabulous piece of writing. Um, it's, a, it's kind of like a dictionary of desire and love. So the fragments are broken down. It's something that a lot of like first year university students get their hands on as the first piece of critical theory, abstract thought about this kind of stuff and breathe it into their life all over the place. That's definitely what I did. But Bart looks at the fact that this very thing that we're talking about, that this act of imagination strips the desired object in some ways of their identity. And the book is about, it's broken into um, entries such as the other's body, the heart, catastrophe, these universal experiences that come as a result of desiring and loving. Mm. Um, There's a, um, in the marriage plot by Jeffrey Eugenides. Absolutely. Um, one of the first chapters is Madeline gets her hands on a copy of the lover's discourse and she doesn't really understand it. Uh, and then she goes through this experience of loving and losing someone. And all of a sudden the book makes sense to her. And I love that idea of, of abstract theory only um, making sense when it's grounded in experience. Yeah, once you've lived it. And yeah. then retrospectively you go, oh, yeah, yeah totally. 
So let's talk about our favorite books that involve abstract romanticism. Octavia. I'm ready. So mine is a French book called Cherie by Colette. Very um, true to form. True to form. Uh, it was first published in 1920. You can get it in translation in a lot of places. Um, and it's about this character called Fred Pelou, who's known to everybody as Cherie, which means darling in French, if you didn't know. Um, and it's about love. It's about separation. It's about the way we idealize our lovers. It's about the complexity of that whole uh, exchange, I suppose. And it problematizes it by having Cherie's lover, Léa, um, be a lot older. So quite unusual for the time. Léa was 43 and he was only 19 when they met. And there is a definite questionable incest narrative going on as well. You know, like we're so used to books about daddy issues. What about books about mommy issues? Um, anyway, they meet and, and they have a six year long love affair and they think it's not meaningful. Phys they think it's mainly physical and not really romantic. And then he gets engaged to someone his own age and suddenly she realizes that she can't live without him. And they have this separation and they come back together um, in a very kind of passionate way. And, warning, spoilers, um, they, s they spend the night together and then in the morning they wake up and he sees in the cold light of day how her body has aged and it's super poignant and he leaves. Um, because essentially she'd become an abstraction for him and a sim symbolic of all sorts of things and then the reality of her as a woman who is, you know, older. Um, and it, it carries a lot of weight because this was stuff that Colette herself really struggled with. She struggled with aging. Um, she described writing the character of Leia as a premonition. Um, so you, you really get an insight into the, the mentality of this, this writer who I think is, you know, phenomenally clever. It's interesting because I think if a man had written that, I'd be really offended. Yeah, totally. Of course. And of course. I'm still a bit offended. It is offensive. Totally, it's offensive. But it's it's an exploration of something that we don't like to think about, but that happens mm. in society. And hopefully less so now because people are a bit more kind of educated in the gender politics of everything and sexuality and all of that stuff. But but it, it, I think the reason it's an uncomfortable read is because it touches on a neurosis, mm. you know? And the thing that you find out in the book that she's had younger lovers before. So there's the question of like, what is this woman's proclivity for, you know, much younger men, like 20 years younger? It's a question that mm. hangs in the air. And it's interesting because like I said, we're so used to seeing it the other way around in films and books and songs even, you know, like songs from the 60s about young girls. There are so many of them. Um, and having it inverted like this is a really mm. interesting, it, 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 yeah, it, I guarantee it will press lots of buttons, whatever your gender, whatever your orientation, um, give it a go. Sounds fab. Mm. Well, I am going to also be true to form and, and recommend a book of literary fiction that oh was published recently. So cliche. One won lots of prizes. Um, I've probably also re recommended it on the show before, so I apologize for that, but it's, um, Possession by A.S. Byatt and... We were talking about the epistolary novel before, and this isn't an epistolary novel as such, but it has lots of letters. Um, it was written in 1990, and it won the Booker Prize that year. So wow. um, it, it's, you know, it's it's a big deal. Um, there are two strands of desire and obsession in this novel. Um, one is between two modern-day academics, um, and then the other is uh, a love affair between two Victorian poets. And those two academics discover this love affair and sort of have to investigate it. Um, I love this novel. Um, it's, it's really beautifully written and has a totally satisfying detective story at its heart. 
which is always fun. But um, I also love it because it's about our relationship with texts um, and and the meaning we ascribe to them and the space that's necessarily cleaved between a writer and their work. And I think that has a lot to do with this idea of abstract romanticism. It's a book all about desire, um, but not just in the sense of love and and these two love affairs, but also our desire to find the, the truth and the way that's always constantly slipping away from us, especially in text, which um, which in its abstraction resist meaning and resists um, our desires. It sounds completely up my street. I've never read it. It's obviously such a famous book, but I've never. It's it's so, it's it's gripping is a word that's overused but it's gripping can it's i borrow your copy yeah i can see it right now amazing yeah goodie bag. It to you. <laughs> okay we'll be back in a moment with our book recommendations with chris kraus This is Literary Friction. We are back with wonderful Chris Kraus to give our book recommendations for this week. So I might ask Octavia to start with your recommendation. Sure thing. Um, I'm recommending something very topical, which is Gravity and Grace, the Simone Weil text that's, that Chris talks about in I Love Dick. Um, because I haven't read a huge amount of new stuff since the last show, but that's a book that I go to on a pretty much daily basis in the morning when I set up my day. Um, because it's it's not a book that was designed for publication by her. It's a collection of fragments of her writing. And so you can read a little, little nugget at a time, right? That's not a narrative so much. But her mysticism and her the way she is about metaphysics is really quite astonishing. And I'm, this is a big shout out to our dear friend Steve, who first got me onto Gravity and Grace and said, you know, this is gonna save your intellect and it's gonna save your mind. And he wasn't wrong. Um, and she, it, it split up into little intertitle sections called things like the void, love, evil, affliction. So, you know, super light. Um, but her thinking is timeless and challenging and affirming and, complicated in terms of kind of spirituality and, and religion and mysticism. And it's something that if I tried to read it when I was younger and more bullshit about that stuff, I would have been turned off. But at this point in my life, it makes so much sense to have it factoring in. So um, if you are over the age of 25, get it, <laughs> is what I would say. This is, I should say, Chris, this is our friend Steve, who asked us if we could ask you if if you thought that evil existed in the world? Absolutely. <laughs> there you go, He'll Steve, be darling. You'll be thrilled that. about that. <laughs> That's a great setup for my book recommendation. Yeah, oh, go, go for, for it. it. Yeah, yeah. I was given a copy of this by my friend Julian Raffiner to read on the trip. Um, WikiLeaks by Julian Assange. I just started it. I'm only about 30 pages in, but this is definitive proof that evil does exist in the world. And um, I mean, these things that you might know in a general way, but you don't really know the specifics. I mean, he really fills in the blanks here. This, I mean, they were just, just ha I mean, the book kind of, most of the book documents a meeting between the CEO of Google and Julian Assange, kind of a historic meeting. You know, like the meeting of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs that Michelle Hulbeck 
describes in his book, The Map and the Territory, fictionally. Well, this was a real life meeting between Assange and the CEO of Google. And so just in the first 20 pages, he talks about how incredibly complicit um, Google is with the US State Department in tweaking and manipulating social media activity in parts of the world where the US State Department needs to control the outcome. He might not be a nice person. He might be crazy as a coot, but um, it doesn't really matter. That doesn't yeah. impact the work. And that's, I mean, that's the thing that Snowden made so brilliantly clear when he made all those disclosures. He kept looking for a way to make, he said, the story's gonna be about me. The story's gonna be about me, but it's not about me. And he kept looking for ways to make the story not be about him. Mm. Mm. You know, the same thing with Assange. I mean, people can like, you know, and then, the, you know, the whole sort of Swedish rape thing kind of really facilitates that process, right? And it's what the, it's what the bad guys want, you know? They want Assange discredited so that the impact of his writing is much less, right? And it didn't work that way. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, anything to kind of, you know, create a character drama to distract from what the information is that he's actually, that WikiLeaks has actually been putting out. Mm. Interesting. Well, my uh, recommendation has nothing to do with WikiLeaks or Julian Assange. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's a poetry collection that I've been really digging this week by a young British poet named Helen Mort. Um, and it's, it's her second collection. It's called No Maps Could Show Them. Um, her first collection was called Division Street. And uh, she's from Sheffield. And there's a street in Sheffield called Division Street. And it was all about divisions between people. So divisions, you know, in relationships, divisions between the police and the people in protest. There's a, there's a strand of real politicism um, running through her work, which I really admire. Um, she has really precise prose, which I admire as well. It's very striking and sort of naked and bare. Um, and this collection is, she's a really avid mountain climber and trail runner. And this collection is inspired by f uh, women mountaineers. So from the sort of pioneering mountaineers when they were climbing in um, petticoats and skirts and sort of lifting them up as they scrambled over rocks to um, a, a, a woman who died very recently on the face of K2. And uh, she makes some really interesting comparisons between like the female body and the, the landscape of a mountain, sort of like breasts as scree and just a really, really evocative images. And it's, uh, it's sort of, it's quite emotional as well. It's very elegiac um, as well as celebrating women and mountain climbing. And it's, it's been really nice to pick it up on the tube and just dip into it. So I'd really recommend it. It sounds fascinating. And also mountain climbing, in my mind, has always been an act of patriarchal oppression, essentially. So how wonderful to come at it from a different perspective. Yeah. Can, I borrow, can I borrow it? Yes, and uh, it's actually not published yet. It's an early copy, so I, I don't... Oh, perks from yeah. the job, <laughs> eh? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's being published in July, So, but if I finish it, you can read it before that. Thank you, babe. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Chris Kraus. You should all read I Love Dick now, if you haven't, and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and also on nts.live. Um, you can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please say hi. We love interacting with you guys. Um, it really helps us get some feedback and everything. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.